This is Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, bringing you insights and views from across Asia's food value chain. Now for today's interview. Hi, everybody. I'm Duke Kip, host of Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, and we've got another great guest with us today. We have with us today Dr. Neo Soon-Bin. He's the managing director of Soon Soon Group of Companies in Malaysia. Dr. Neo, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking me to come on. Excellent. No, we're, we're, we're glad you could do this. And if it's okay, in the spirit of the five good questions, we'll we'll start with the first one and uh, and get get going. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, the first question I have for you is, uh, I guess, a, sort of a, a tougher one out of the gate here is around food security. Of course, it's always topical and timely uh, across Malaysia and across all of Asia, and with, with good reason. According to uh, the latest data from the United Nations just last year, the number of hungry people in Asia rose to twenty in twenty twenty one from four hundred and eighteen million to four hundred and twenty five million. That means, of course, that Asia, our region, can his, continues to lead the world when it comes to number of people affected by hunger. Could you maybe share a little bit about the Soon Soon Group and how you see your work there through your organization, your company, helping support the larger effort to drive food security in Malaysia and, and elsewhere? Okay, I understand. You guys have this in Singapore. And two years ago, we stopped exporting chicken because we were short of chicken. <laughs> That's right. And the Singaporeans were up in arms uh, without the chicken rice. You know, yeah. until today, I hear the portions are smaller in the Mandarin Hotel. <laughs> so, so obviously, <clears throat> food security is an issue that affects the whole world. I may have people lining up to buy food in the UK. I mean, in Malaysia, we short of eggs and chicken and everything else. So, so this this obviously an issue, which is so we say uh, very important to every country and every government. And the reason why this is happening, and and I believe is it might get worse before it gets better. Is because of the changes that happened, um, especially after 2020. Now, of course, you had the pandemic, which effectively destroys the workforce. What happened during the pandemic was there was a dislocation of labor. Because Malaysia depends on foreign labor for its agricultural sector. So about 2 million uh, workers actually left and nobody came back for a couple of years. So there were actually shortages, serious shortages in farms. The other problem, of course, was the dislocation of the supply chain. Containers uh, that used to come in a month would take two, three months to come. And nobody knows when is it coming. So there was a big panic. You know, Many countries in Green Malaysia ran out of certain raw materials. So what happened was in 2020, our company changed our a stocking policy from just in time, which is normal, to just in case. Mm. So subsequently, most uh, countries actually did that. And that resulted in even more shortages, especially with the geopolitics. You know, uh, what happened in Russia and Ukraine created a kind of like a chain effect, uh, causing India to stop the export of wheat as well and uh, prices to go skyrocketing. So uh, that was, you know, actually quite scary at that time because many flour mills in this region had contracts with uh, Ukraine and, and India, which suddenly disappeared. Of course, geopolitics has a very big effect on, on food supply because essentially countries can say, I don't like you, I don't buy your food, or I don't sell it to you. And, and 
we are so dependent on trade to keep our food chain alive that any kind of disruption like the Ukraine-Russian war had a very, very big impact on prices and availability. So food supply and security has become a priority. So that actually creates perhaps not such a healthy consequence, which is countries will try to grow their own food. Like, for example, uh, Malaysia imports almost 80-90% of its food and raw materials. All the wheat, all the corn, all the soybeans are imported and a lot of rice. So the government starts saying, hey, why don't we grow corn? And I attended a seminar and and I told the government, uh, you know, in America, uh, they can achieve almost 10 tons per hectare of corn per hectare. But Malaysia, so far, we only can achieve three tons. However, we can produce 3.5 tons of palm oil, which is something like four or five times the value of corn. So why would we produce corn, which has about one-fifth the actual value? Then your land be used for producing corn, which is ineffective, and you won't produce palm oil. And therefore, you don't have income. Or the poor people, the, yeah, as you know, a lot of the palm oil plantations are also smallholders in Malaysia. They don't get income. So you're going to make them poor. So, so it comes back to the basic point. You know, what is the price you need to pay for food security? Now, of course, the third elephant in the room is the sustainability issue, especially the new Green Deal from the EU, which essentially says, look, we, they want to be a carbon neutral continent by 2050 and reduction of greenhouse gas emission by 55% by 2030. Now, what that would imply, because of the scope three, which measures third-party greenhouse gas emission, you can't supply anything to the EU from outside if it uses a lot of uh, carbon, right? So essentially, <clears throat> you couldn't import uh, raw materials from, let's say, America, uh, like corn and soybean, make it into chicken feed, feed it to chickens and export it back to Europe. That won't work because uh, you'll never get a 55% reduction by the year 2030. So the new Green Deal is encouraging local inefficient production of food. Of course, one of the big export items from the US to all over the world is, uh, is soybeans. And in the tropics, they grow soybeans, but the average yield is about 1.5 tons per hectare, while the US is 3.3 tons. So if you start um, attempting to grow more soybeans, it uh, means you have to grow something else less. And I, you could even make the shortages worse. So I think I don't have a, an answer to your question, but I think I have a lot of questions myself uh, how are we going to navigate through this uh, incredibly complicated uh, future, which has geopolitics, has sustainability issues, uh, and uh, efficiency of production, livelihood of people? Very complex, uh, deal. It's, yeah. it's not easy to answer that question. Oh, understood. Thanks, Dr. Neil. And we'll, and we'll actually get into some of these topics. It's very thorough uh, answer and appreciate your views on that. That was okay. We'll move on to the second question. I'd like to maybe maybe dive into specifically into your part of this discussion around food security. 
looking a little bit uh, in more detail on the food and feed ingredients industry that you're with. Um, and of course, there's greater awareness around where food comes from generally in society, which is a great development. But at the same time, as there's a greater awareness, not necessarily a deeper understanding of where food comes from. And, and there are certainly a lot of misperceptions that come with that. Are there any misperceptions when it comes to, again, the role the food and feed and ingredients industry and that your company and, and others are playing here in the region? Absolutely. I think consumers uh, do not understand where their food comes from. I mean, to be quite honest, that's a deliberate uh, act by food companies. I mean, if you knew, for example, in the UK, I read that the fresh fish in Sainsbury is actually 14 days old. You know, you don't want that information to, to be on the package, right? So, so people don't really understand how the food, the feed ingredients actually interact with each other. For example, does the average consumer know that it takes only 30 days to grow a chicken to 2 kg using only about 1.4 kilos of feed? That, that information is not freely available. So therefore, the notion of having romantic notions of having a few chicken in the backyard is not going to cut it because that's going to take probably six months and you probably get 1 kg. So the food industry is an extremely efficient and connected industry. If you sort of remove any part of it, like using the sustainability reasons, then you could cause a huge inefficiency or worse shortages. That I think is something we are very aware of. But the consumer, no. They still have the romantic idea that all these happy chickens are sort of you know, running around in circles and you know that kind of thing is not happening today, not in our industry. Efficiency is the most important, right? Because to be fair to the industry, they have managed to keep the cost of meat and food relatively cheap compared with inflation. Now, I always tell people, the price of chicken today in the market is about the same as when I was growing up in the 60s. Right? So how efficient is that? Because the inflation is probably more than a thousand percent since the 60s. So I believe consumers are not aware because they also need low prices. Right, so low prices will need um, certain efficiencies to be built into the system, which is very dependent, of course, on supply chain and and, and production uh, disruptions. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you again for that that answer. And there are no easy questions here. Unfortunately, we talked about food security, we're a little bit deeper into perception of uh, consumers, and now. I'd like to move over to sustainability, something you touched on there specifically just a few moments ago. As you know, sustainability really is um, it's, it's grown from this uh, more of a less of a buzzword to more of a societal expectation around uh, natural resources, healthier diets, uh, awareness that we talked about where, where food is coming from. And one initiative, you've, you've already referenced it here in our, in our chat, that's getting a lot of attention globally and here in the region, uh, is the EU Green Deal uh, and, and specifically implications for food production here in Asia. Can you share your thoughts on how you know, we can drive a more sustainable food production and uh, supply chain here in, in Asia and your perspective specifically on the Green Deal. Yeah. I think the Green Deal, uh, like it or not, is a European uh, deal, right? I, I'm not sure that's a good deal for, for them even. But for, for the rest of the world, I think, I mean, I talked to USAC and Americans and they said that we have analyzed it and it's going to cause food inflation. Prices are going to go up if you implement that green deal. Now, of course, that has caused a little bit of a panic uh, because the green deal is in insisting that the scope three, which is the emissions 
of uh, third parties have to be taken into account. Uh, you can't say, I'm going to grow my chicken in Thailand and ship it in. No, no. You have to do a life cycle analysis and come up with a greenhouse gas emission. And that's the number they want. So what that actually does is that it is telling people that you need to have you know, raw materials close by and in a, re in a reliable manner. So the only way to do that is to grow your own. But as I say, the yield of soybeans in Asia is only you know, 1.4 tons actually, and in US is 3.3, or in China. Now China, there's a big, shall we say, pressure from, from the authorities to grow more soybeans. But if you grow more soybeans inefficiently, what would happen? Then you don't have enough wheat. Then you don't have enough corn. So how does that help the overall picture? It doesn't, right? But obviously, you can import corn and wheat from more countries than you can from soybeans. So politically or strategically, that might be a good idea. But you know, from the perspective of efficiency and livelihood, I don't think that's such a great idea. So, so basically what the Green Deal says that they also want to build sustainable economies and nobody's going to be left behind. So if they are serious about that and they were to look into the livelihoods of farmers in Southeast Asia uh, that export to Europe, maybe they can see that the livelihood of these, these people will be seriously impacted if you know, they couldn't export to Europe because of the greenhouse gas emission. Now, of course, um, every country now, from what I know, like Thailand, Vietnam, even Philippines, and I'm not sure about Indonesia, they're trying to have their own, shall we say, sustainability program and do their own life cycle uh, analysis. So ultimately, I think this will push production away from efficient countries like US, South America, you know, even Eastern Europe, uh, towards inefficient production in Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines, you know, which obviously have much lower yield. Now, God gave us about 100 inch of rain and 365 days of sunshine. Why do you want to grow a crop that only needs sunshine for three months? You know, what do you do with the other nine months? You see? So we want to grow crops like palm oil that, you know, needs that sunshine and rain, right? Or like mangoes, you know, which has much higher value. Why should we be forced to grow things for low value? Okay. Thanks, Dr. Neo. It's a, it's a topical, it's a hot button issue. So I want to get your views on that. Thanks for, for your views. Um, the fourth question I'd like to touch on here uh, in relation to um, this region and what your organization is doing. I, I want to talk about the, the smallholder farmers because it really is something we talk about a lot on the podcast and we hear about the, sort of the, the view uh, and narrative of the smallholder because it's such a unique one here for our region. As you know, home for the smallest size farms in the world and the largest number of smallholders in the world. And so for these growers, they have so many issues that come with that. And access to market is, of course, one of the bigger ones, right? Are there any recommendations that you would have for countries in this region to help their smallholders maintain and grow their competitiveness in in, uh, in light of these challenges we've just gotten into? Yeah, I think Malaysia is one of the few countries that made uh, smallholdings uh, successful in the palm oil industry. However, those have run into problems as well because the, the next generation or the two generations after the first generation doesn't want to become a farmer. They want to be a banker or a lawyer or something. So they are very short on labor as well. So how that is successful is because they had government backing 
and they had, uh, shall we say, communal uh, harvesting. And there, there was a complete supply chain that was built around those uh, farms. So it was very much a government intervention and made it successful. Now, of course, we already know the production of corn and soybeans are much lower in Asia because uh, essentially most of it are smallholders. Eventually, it's all like this. If you need a lower carbon footprint to make your product exportable to the euro, then the cost of producing it, the raw materials, is not as important, right? I mean, if you could sell it at a higher price, you can afford higher raw materials. So if the Europeans are willing to pay you a good price, technically, your farmers will be able to produce um, the raw materials for you, maybe at a larger cost, but you could charge that, pass that on to the Europeans. So, so technically, this kind of compromise might actually work. But of course, that will make prices of food go up. So it will have to be a compromise. But small orders, obviously, in a better position uh, to supply domestically than you know, importing it because of this, the new deal, right? The new Green Deal um, looks closely at um, you know scope three. So, so maybe that's the role of uh, smallholders is that they need to be part of this um, sustainability program, uh, and somebody has to pay that extra money for that inefficiency. That's the way I look at it, because there's no other way unless the government has a massive intervention. Thanks again, Darnia, for, again, tough issue. I appreciate your views on that as well. We got into some more complex issues. We've had this discussion. I'd like to end this interview as we do this season, talking about something a little bit lighter. And you, you touched earlier on chicken rice in relation to the, the chicken shortage from uh, from last year. And it comes down to the food we eat. Our exit question this season, straightforward, a little more fun. What's your favorite food for our region that you enjoy the most? You know, to ask a Malaysian that question is like <laughs> the guy's spot for choice, right? I mean, right. Malaysia has got the most uh, multicultural, multi-racial, or even multi-culinary uh, uh, environment. Um, but I think what's interesting in Malaysia, a lot of people did not realize that the, the Chinese actually came very much earlier in the 1500s, you know, I think some emperor decided to marry off his daughter, one of his daughters, to the sultan here. So a big group of Chinese came. Now, obviously, they were mainly men, uh, some women, but mainly men. So they married, you know, the local Malays. And from there, they developed a cuisine that is known as the Peranakan or Nonia cuisine. Um, so that's interesting because that creates a unique cuisine, which obviously doesn't exist anywhere else. So one of my favorite Narnia cuisine is actually the what we call the Asam Laksa, which is uh, like a sour laksa. Uh, and in particular, the one cooked by my mom. So my mom was actually an incredibly good cook, and she's quite famous for her cooking. But her Asam Laksa was incredible. However, it, it shows that life is not what it used to be. It takes two days to prepare. The first day, they'll boil the fish, a special fish, which is full of bones. Then they spend the whole day picking out the bones, believe it or not, okay? Then they put that in the fridge. And then the next day, uh, this early in the morning, they start boiling the soup with the fish and everything else. It goes on for about five, six hours. And by, by lunchtime, uh, you have a soup which you add on to a rice noodle. And that's what you got, the, the laksa, asam laksa. So that's my absolute favorite. And, you know, however, it goes to show that... Uh, 
you know, we don't have that kind of time anymore. <laughs> you know, I think we, we need something that's off a can or a package or something. That that kind of dish is extremely difficult to produce. But there are obviously quite good ones. So Asam Laksa would be one of my favorite, if not my absolute favorite. That's a great answer. And some things are worth the wait. It sounds like that uh, that dish is certainly well worth the wait. So thanks, Dr. Neo, for doing this. Once again, you're officially yeah. off the five questions hot seat and uh, appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, and subscribe. We look forward to bringing you another five good questions interview. 